Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is your spot before and after the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team's match against Nigeria. Match begins at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 6th at Audi Field. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm going to start off by, by saying that um, we're going to shut Kate down for two weeks. He threw in the game, came back the next day, was going to do his routine. He's playing catch. After about 10 throws, he said he felt tight in the shoulder area. We shut him down, came in, we got him an MRI right away. Um, Dr. Jaron read the MRI, and everything looks good, except for he has a little bit of inflammation around the capsule, but the, the labrum, tendons, the rotated cuff, everything's very, very clean. So we're gonna be very, very cautious. Uh, you know, we talked to Cade, Cade says he feels good today. Now the pitch, swung on, belted, deep left center field. This is way back, this ball is gone. Grand slam for Sean Murphy. And with four on the board in the fifth, the A's have hit double digits. It's now Oakland 10 and Washington five. And welcome to Nats Chat for Wednesday, August 31st, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. In this brutally bad 2022 Nationals season, there have been many brutally bad days. You don't need me to tell you that. I don't know if Tuesday was the worst of those days, but uh, Tuesday is at least in that conversation. It turns out that Cade Cavalli is essentially done for the season. It turns out that another top prospect for the Nats, Brady House, is essentially done for the season. And, oh yeah, the Nats on Tuesday night got stomped by the second worst team in the majors. The Oakland A's 10-6 was the final at Nationals Park in Game 1 of a three-game series. Uh, the Nats now a major league worst of 43 and 86. The Nats on Tuesday night actually hit for what felt like the first time in forever. But the A's hit more. And uh, Mark, we will see no more of Cade Cavalli this season, even though the Nats won't come out and say that, I guess. Yeah, look, I don't want to say there's zero chance of it happening, but think of it this way. There's, I think, five and a half weeks to go in the season. They're shutting him down for two weeks and then, in theory, building him up again. Even in a best case scenario, if that all goes exactly how they hope it does, and he has no setbacks along the way not a lot of time to make it back. Now, I don't think they want to tell him that he's done for the year because they want him to work through this. They don't want him just to go home and spend the winter 
uh, frustrated over how this all went. I think they want him to have a goal to shoot for. Maybe it amounts to him coming back and throwing an inning or two sometime late in the season, but it's certainly discouraging and it's certainly not going to be the six weeks to end this year that we thought it was going to be where you could have something to cling to here and say, okay, Cade Cavalli, you got six, seven big league starts. we got a real taste of what's to come. Instead, it's like he's going to be starting all over next year in, in all likelihood, and we're not really going to know what kind of big league pitcher he is yet until we see him next April. It really was a bummer, and it felt like it came out of nowhere, this news on Tuesday afternoon. So David Martinez, in his pregame press conference on Tuesday, announced that the Nats will be placing Cade Cavalli on an injured list due to right shoulder inflammation. It turns out that the day after his major league debut, which was this past Friday night, he played catch. He felt shoulder tightness after around 10 pitches, and the Nats are not going to take any chances with this, and you certainly can't blame them for that. You're not going to fool around with right shoulder inflammation for your top pitching prospect. But geez, I mean, one start, and now he's you know essentially done for the season. And you know, as we talked about, I mean, the start wasn't maybe as bad as the final line indicated, but it's not like the start went well. Seven runs in four and a third innings. And, you know, it brought me right back to Steven Strasburg's debut this year where the guy pitches one game and that's it. You don't hear from him again. You don't see him again because something popped up. Now, this is different than what Strasburg is dealing with. But man, I mean, if you're a Nats fan, it feels like nothing can go right these days, you know, and we'll get to the Brady House thing momentarily. But geez, this was like the one thing to look forward to down the stretch of this season, Cade Cavalli starting. And now it turns out, almost certainly we're only going to get one outing from him. Yeah, I had the same thought that you did about Strasburg because it was reminiscent of it. Not the injury, but the timing of it. it. This great anticipation to his first start. That start doesn't look so great in terms of the numbers, but there were things within it that you said, okay, we may have something here. I want to see him again. And then with a few days, you're finding out, no, actually, we're not going to be seeing him again. Now, it's important to note here, he did not feel anything in that start physically wrong with himself. It was the next day when he was playing catch. And, you know, I guess you could say one positive out of this is that he brought it up immediately. He mentioned it to them right then and there after throwing about 10 throws on Saturday, and they went and got the MRI on Sunday. The MRI, according to David Martinez, showed nothing with the rotator cuff, labrum, nothing like that. It just showed the inflammation of the shoulder. There are other young pitchers, and we've seen them over the years, who would not have spoken up on this and tried to pitch through it, and who knows what that might have led to. So maybe that's a small glimmer of, of something positive here, that he spoke up quickly, and maybe that does mean that they caught it quickly and aren't going to let it turn into anything else. Now, that said... <laughs> doesn't make it any less disappointing, the result of all this. And what happened? I don't know. Did he work so hard? Was he so amped up in that game? We know he was sweating bullets through it all, you know, through 99 pitches in fewer than five innings. Was it just too much for him? And then all of a sudden the next day, ooh, I don't quite feel right. That's, you know, a little concerning, of course. But I suppose you look at this and say, doesn't appear to be anything that serious. This isn't a long-term injury. It's The timing is not good because we're about a month away from the season being over now. But this isn't something that, you know, if it had happened in April or May, would have knocked him out for a great length of time. Eric Fetty, again, not the exact same situation. Eric Fetty just had shoulder inflammation, went on the IL, was back in four weeks. So Cavalli, not quite the same there. But if this was a different time of year, we'd be seeing him again. Yeah, it was funny to me 
the way Davey Martinez talked about this, and he wouldn't say that Cavalli's season is over. And, you know, he's talking about how he doesn't just want Cavalli to, like, you know, rest and not do anything. And I don't know. I mean, if they said that his season was over, do they really think that he wouldn't do anything? Like, do they not trust him to where they're, they're like, we better make it sound like he might pitch again, otherwise he's not going to work hard? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I find the whole thing kind of silly. He's not a dummy. Like, anyone can look at a calendar and figure out a pitcher with shoulder inflammation, especially a pitcher as highly touted as Cavalli, who's going on an injured list now in late August, early September. I mean, you do the math, he's going to have to build his arm back up if he's going to pitch in a game again. Like, he's done for the season. I don't know why you can't just say that. You know, he's not like a five-year-old who you have to, you know, dangle like a little lollipop in front of him to get him to do something. So, I don't know. I just found that kind of silly. But, yeah, it's just, it stinks, you know? This whole Nat season stinks, okay? This really stinks, what is happening here uh, with Cade Cavalli. Now, he does not have any kind of significant injury history, right? All these recent Nats first-round picks who have been pitchers, Seth Romero, Mason Denneberg, Jackson Rutledge, they've all dealt with injury to varying degrees. Cavalli really hasn't, right? Yeah, nothing that I'm aware of. And let's remember, he really hasn't pitched that much in his life. Even in college, he was a two-way player, only became a full-time pitcher there towards the end. Drafted in 2020, there was no minor league season. 2021 was his only full minor league season until this year. Some little things along the way, he had that finger issue in the summer that knocked him out of the Futures game, but that wasn't anything to worry about. So yeah, I don't think anybody is significantly concerned here in the larger picture. I think it's just, like you said, so frustrating because of the timing and that feeling of just when you thought there was something encouraging here to look forward to over the rest of the season, it's just pulled away from you. It's like they pulled the rug out underneath you. And I'll tell you what, I also do wonder if this is going to change their mindset with Mackenzie Gore and Josiah Gray and how they want to use them the rest of the way. We know that they're watching Josiah Gray's innings. He's going to come back and start Friday against the Mets. But I would not be surprised if they are really watching him closely the rest of the way, skip some more starts or shut him down at some point. Mackenzie Gore coming back from elbow inflammation. He's thrown off a bullpen mound. He did it again on Tuesday, but now he's going to do it another time. They're going to ramp him up, but we're probably talking at best a couple of starts at the end of the year. Does this make them say, well, maybe let's not push that too hard. And now you get to the end of this year and you're saying, we didn't get to see those three young starting pitchers that hopefully are going to form the the foundation of this rotation moving forward. And we may not get to see much of them at all before this is all said and done. That's very discouraging. Yeah. And you're obviously not going to see Cole Henry. You know, this Kate Cavalli news comes just a few weeks after the really painful news that Cole Henry would be undergoing surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome. I mean, we thought by the end of this season, Cade Cavalli, Mackenzie Gore, Cole Henry could all be pitching for the Nats at the major league level. And now it turns out, with the exception of Cade Cavalli's uh, debut, we may not see any of those three guys uh, pitching for the Nats here moving forward for the rest of this season. Jeez, it's just, it's like there's a dark cloud over this Nats team this season and really going back a few years now. It just, uh, you know, I hate that we have to constantly talk about negative stuff like this, but I mean, ha- what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to frame this Cade Cavalli news from Tuesday in any way other than it being really bad? And of course, as if that wasn't enough, we also have this. Finally, some kind of an update on Brady House. Uh, so Brady House is among the Nats' top position playing prospects. Shortstop Brady House, Nats took him with the number 11 pick in the 2021 
MLB draft out of a high school in Georgia. Uh, he is ranked as the Nats' number five prospect per MLB pipeline. Brady House has been out for months with a back injury for which we have received very little information. He has been on the seven-day injured list since June 23rd. That was a little more than seven days ago. Well, the manager of the Nats' low-A affiliate, the Fredericksburg Nationals, is Jake Lowry. He on Tuesday spoke to Fredericksburg.com and didn't say that Brady House's season is over, but said that the idea with House is to get him ready for spring training next year. So that seemed to communicate that House's season is over. Now, you know, in not seeing Brady House play for months, I don't think people are shocked by this. There are a few things here. Number one is the bad news that Brady House's season appears to be done. Number two is what has been going on with House in this back injury and this lack of information that we've gotten from the team about what's happening with House. Yeah, so I've been asking about it for a while from various people with the team who you can tell they've been told not to say too much. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. What they have said, though, is that whatever it is that's going on, while it was likely to end his season just because, again, they're running out of time and you get to a point that you say it's not worth it to try to build him up again, that it's not something they believe would have any lingering effects beyond this year. It's not a long-term problem. Now, that said, talking about an 18-year-old with back problems, that's not a combination you want to hear, not something that you normally do hear about. So that concerns me and has concerned me throughout this whole process. And just the fact that they have been very much keeping this under wraps and not wanting to say much at all about what's really going on there. So I don't believe it's something that he had any kind of surgery. I don't think this is like a devastating injury of any type, but it is certainly something that was significant enough to knock him out for this long and convince them not to try to ramp him back up and then hope that this isn't an issue at all moving forward. But just like add it to the list, like you said, name one positive development this year. But I mean, really go back to, you know, since November 3rd, 2019, whatever it was, the day of the parade, like think of how many positive developments there have been for this franchise. And then think of how many negative developments there have been for this franchise and really negative events for this franchise. So it is so frustrating for everybody because- you can accept the losing, like we said all along, but if you see glimmers of the future, if you see positive things happening with young players, even if they're not even in the big leagues yet, you can at least say, okay, I see where this is all going. I have hope for the future. It's hard to feel that way right now. It doesn't mean they won't get there, but right now it's hard to feel that way because there have been so few positive developments this year with young players who could be a part of the future. Yeah, the fact that this entire Brady House situation has been cloaked in such secrecy, I do find to be concerning. Like, you don't hide something unless you don't like the something, you know, that you don't want that something out there. Like, if it was just nothing, I think the Nats would be more upfront about what's happening here with Brady House. So I think this is concerning. And, you know, you, you say, okay, He's on the seven-day injured list since June 23rd. We're now deep into August, about to go into September. That's two-plus months he's been out with his back injury. So if he didn't have surgery, then what the heck is going on here? And is this going to be some sort of you know, lasting chronic thing that he has to deal with moving forward? You know, we don't know. And, you know, the Nats aren't particularly forthcoming about injuries to begin with here. But yeah, I mean, at least with the Cade Cavalli thing, you could say, all right, right shoulder inflammation isn't necessarily a big deal. This house thing, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. We don't know. 
And the thing is, when you're given such little information, all you're left to do is speculate and wonder and, you know, ponder. And the mind goes in all kinds of directions. And you're like, well, what exactly is happening here? So we certainly wish Brady House the best. You know, he is falling in the prospect rankings. He's not considered a top 100 prospect anymore. And, and this guy for a while was like not just top 100, like top, you know, 50, top 60 type. And, and he's fallen over the last year here because of what's happened this season. So we'll see. You know, there's more too we could even do. James Wood, <laughs> he he's now day to day, it looks like, with, with a knee situation. He was not in the Fred Nats lineup on Tuesday night. Much different than the Kate Cavalli and Brady House situations. But man, I mean, it was like one thing after another with the team on Tuesday. Jeez, someday we'll have happy news to talk about. Uh, today, unfortunately, is not that day. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It is time for Window Nation's back to school sale. And what a sale this is. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Window Nation windows are the best. Lower your energy bills. Raise the value of your home with new energy-efficient windows from Window Nation. Get an A-plus in savings by taking advantage of the back-to-school sale. Again, two free windows for every two that you buy, plus pay nothing with no interest until 2025. Window Nation knows exactly what it's doing. The average Window Nation installer has over 16 years of experience with over 20,000 windows installed. And Window Nation offers a variety of windows. Over 1,500 custom window combinations are available, vinyl, wood, and fiberglass. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and ask for the back-to-school sale. Again, buy two windows, get two windows free on any style of new window from Window Nation, plus pay nothing until 2025. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION, windownation.com or 866-90-NATION, and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. The way I take care of my mind is daily exercise. It is essential for me. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. There's also BetterHelp online therapy. Everyone I know who does therapy swears by it. It feels like all I hear these days is how you have to start doing therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you don't have to fight traffic or look for parking. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash natschat. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash natschat. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The one-two pitch. Swing a line drive hook down the right field line. It's a fair ball. Hits the chalk line. Now the sidewall deflects into straightaway right field. Stevenson has scored. Headed home is Allen. Manessas fires toward the plate. It's too late. Over to third goes Kemp. The throw there from Ruiz is not in time. And the A's lead 6-4. to four. Well, then came the game on Tuesday night. And uh, like I said earlier, the Nats actually hit. You know, and one of the things that you often see with bad teams is you don't. You never have everything happening well at once. So, like when you pitch well, you don't hit well. When you hit well, you don't pitch well. And the Nats on Tuesday night, right? The team has been pitching well for the most part. Well, the pitching on Tuesday night was really bad. The offense actually, for once, was good. But the Nats ended up getting ripped by the Oakland A's. Ten six was the final. Eric Fetty just got romped in this game. Six runs in two and two thirds innings and. You know, it was particularly disappointing on several levels. Number one, the A's are one of the worst offensive teams in the majors. Oakland came in to Tuesday, 28th out of 30 major league teams in team-weighted runs created plus for the season at 83. 100 is average. 83 is putrid. And yet the A's teed off on Fetty on Tuesday night. But the other thing was, this was Fetty's second start of having come off the 15-day injured list, ironically enough, due to right shoulder inflammation. And he had pitched well in his return game, that 4-2 loss at Seattle the previous Tuesday night, two runs in five innings, six strikeouts versus one walk. He did a nice job in that game. What happened with Eric Fetty on Tuesday night against Oakland? He was really encouraged by that previous start in Seattle. Not just the results, but how he felt, how the pitchers were coming out of his hand. He thought he had made some significant strides from where he was earlier in the year. And then to come out and lay an egg like this, you could see the frustration in him after the game. He felt like it may have been more a case of approach and mindset than anything. He said, and he's not exactly sure why it was the case. Maybe he thought the scouting report was a little different with this team, but he didn't feel like he was throwing inside at all. And he's trying to nibble around the outside parts of the plate. He ends up in these really long counts. I mean, how many times was he 3-2, 2-2, long at bats, and then ends up giving up a hit? At the end of it all, and I think the regret that he had at the end of the night was that he wasn't more aggressive, wasn't throwing fastballs in, trying to get hitters out that way. He was as down as I've seen him in a while. He he knew that this was a game and a matchup against, like you said, one of the worst lineups in baseball that he should have been able to build off his last start and really feel good about where he was. And instead, he doesn't even complete three innings and his pitch count was sky high. It was like Everything you could worry about from an Eric Fetty start, all the hits, as it were, from his standpoint, going from 0-2 to 3-2, can't put hitters away, big home run, long innings, two-out singles, all that stuff. This was all of it condensed into two and two-thirds innings, and it was a really, really ragged start for him. It is amazing to me how much Fetty's 2022 season is like his 2021 season. Gets off to a good start, first third of the season, and then the numbers crater. Eric Fetty's ERA now for this season off, you know, him having been decent for a decent chunk of this season, now is at 529. I mean, he is right back to having some really gruesome numbers. His whip on the season is at 156. And 
it's interesting with Fetty, if you go through him game by game, he is like quote unquote solid in a good number of outings. But when he's bad, I mean, he is really bad. He cannot do the thing that good pitchers can do. And that is when you're off, you know, you make it so that you're not off to an extent to where, you know, you just get ravaged. And he's gotten ravaged now multiple times this season. And some of these lines have been particularly bad. I mean, he had a game at the Mets on May 30th, six runs in one and a third innings. He had a game against Arizona April 20th, seven runs, six earned in three and a third innings. You know, he had a game at Atlanta July 8th, eight runs in three innings. And now he has what he has against Oakland on Tuesday night, six runs in two and two thirds innings. The ERA, I mean, the ERA is what it is. But like, if not for those four really bad starts, the ERA is a lot better. Now, you know, you can't say, well, you take out those starts and the ERA is good. Like, no, that's not how ERA works. Okay. It's, it's, it's in totality what you've done the entire year. But, you know, not every ERA is arrived at in the same way. And I think it's funny with him. When he's good, he's actually not that bad. The problem is you cannot trust him. And you don't know against whom he's going to struggle. Like, he struggled against Oakland. Oakland is awful offensively. And Oakland teed off on him on Tuesday night. And that's the thing with Eric Fetty. You just don't know what you're going to get from him when he takes a mound, unfortunately. So you're saying this isn't like Olympic figure skating where you can just toss out the East German judges number because it's extreme on the on the far end of the of the spectrum? If you could, Eric Fetty might be a Cy Young candidate. But no, sadly, we cannot do that. Or at least a, a gold medal contender. So no, that's not the case. Unfortunately, this should have been a good matchup for him. For the team, this homestand against the Reds and the A's is supposed to be a homestand that gives them a chance to feel good about themselves. Facing two lesser teams... Cavalli was going to make two starts. They know that coming up after this, their final 31 games of the season are all against NL East teams or other contenders from out of division. So this is like the last little breather they may have, and they can't even gain any positive momentum. That is very discouraging, and it makes you just like shudder at the thought of what's still to come over the final month of the season. But with Fetty, I just feel like every time we think to ourselves, okay, He's showing that he can be a back end of the rotation starter. You know, even on a good team, give me three aces. He's not going to be at the top of rotation, but he could be your number four, number five. He's going to give you a chance. And then he puts together one of these starts every three or four outings. And it just makes you think, I just don't know that he's ever going to get there. Uh, the ERA is over five. That's who he is for his career now. And it's it's very discouraging because there are times that you think he's better than that. And then in the long run, you just come back and say, no, this is pretty much exactly who he is. A good pitcher does not get worked the way he got worked by this Oakland team on Tuesday night. Like, there's no excuse for that. This was not the Braves. This was not the Mets. This was not the Dodgers. This was the A's with their puny $25 million payroll, and they whacked you around on Tuesday night. He wasn't the only Nats pitcher who got whacked around in this game. So five Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in six into third innings. The bullpen actually on the whole wasn't bad. Erasmo Ramirez, Victor Arano, and Jake McGee combined for four scoreless innings over the final four innings of the game. Hunter Harvey officially had one and a third scoreless innings with two strikeouts, although he did the first battery face, gave up a two-out, two-run double to Tony Kemp in what ended up being a five-run A's third. But we know how it is with this Nats bullpen. Every now and then, you get one of these innings that is just like torture, okay? And we had one of those on Tuesday night, courtesy of Steve Ciszek, who in the top of the fifth allowed four runs. He issued two walks, gave up a single, and then gave up a two-out grand slam to Sean Murphy 
to left center for a 10-5 A's lead. Murphy had been down in the count at 1.12. The homer went a projected 420 feet per stat cast. And Ciszek in the inning threw 33 pitches, 17 strikes versus 16 bowls. It felt like on Tuesday night, the Nats and A's combined to throw about 400 pitches in this game. And it felt like 350 of the 400 pitches were thrown by Steve Ciszek in that four-run A's fifth. It was the first half of the game. Second half of the game, it was fine. I think at the four and a half innings through this one, they were already past the two-hour mark and collectively had thrown 225 pitches, the two teams. And no, they weren't all by Steve Ciszek, but it did feel like that. That inning was torture because, again, it's kind of the same thing with Fetty. You got two outs. You're one pitch away from just getting out of this thing. And instead, single, walk, grand slam. And as we've noted, when he's off, he's really off. This has not been a good year for him. I know he wasn't the highest of profile of signings or anything like that. And it's not like if Steve Ciszek was having a good year, that would have changed the team's fortunes. But for what he was supposed to be, he really has not come close to that. He was supposed to be a late inning guy who could you know, help out Finnegan and Rainey, set them up, and then ideally be flipped at the trade deadline for something. And instead, he's like the fifth inning guy. And has not been consistent at all and had no trade value in the end. And it's not like they're hanging on to him because, oh, they've got him for several more years. No, he's a free agent at the end of the year. There just was no interest in him. So it's very disappointing. The guy's had a nice, solid career, pitched for a long time. He's a good guy. Everybody likes him. I'm sure he's a a help to the young pitchers. But performance-wise, it just has not come close to being what they were hoping they were getting from him. All right, let's hit on some positives so it's not a total Debbie Downer of a show here. Like I said, the Nats did hit on Tuesday night. We don't know when the next time that'll be, so let's go ahead and savor this. Uh, The Nats on Tuesday night, six runs, 11 hits to go with a walk. And how about our guy, Joey Fourbags, who I guess for at least this show, we have to call Joey Two Bags, although that is a gimmick infringement on Anthony Rendon. But Joey Manessis on Tuesday night as your Nats starting right fielder and number two batter, three for five with three doubles. He had two RBI doubles and another double. He, in fact, became the first rookie in franchise history. And when I say franchise, I mean Nationals slash Expos history to have at least three doubles in a game. Uh, Manessis in an Nats two-run first had a double down the left field line despite having been down at 1.12. Manessis in the Nats two-run second, a one-out opposite field RBI double to right field for a 4-1 Nats lead, and yet another instance of Manessis going the opposite way. And then Manessis in the Nats one-run fourth, a two-out full-count RBI double to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 6-5 despite having been down in that count at 1.02. And that double concluded a 10-pitch plate appearance for Manessis. This is something what this guy is doing, and I'll continue to say this, the fact that he's producing without homering lately, I almost feel like makes it more impressive because it's proving his legitimacy that he's not just some one-trick home run hitting pony like the guy can really hit. He put on a show on Tuesday night, and he did this over the first four innings. The guy through four innings had three doubles in the game. Yeah, I'm with you on that point. I think it's so encouraging to see that now basically a month into his big league career, pitchers aren't coming inside on him anymore because they know he can turn on it and launch it 400 feet to left field. So they're staying away from him. And what's he doing? He's showing that he can still get to those pitches and get on base with singles and doubles. That is the mark of a good hitter. I think everybody in this organization recognizes now that 
this isn't a flash in the pan, just in terms of this is a guy who has been a good hitter throughout his life. He just never got the opportunity to do it at this level. Doesn't mean he's going to be a 350 hitter with a thousand OPS in the big leagues in the long run. That would be wonderful if he was. But it shows that he knows how to hit. He has an approach up there. He's not just swinging wildly and has tons of power. So whenever he connects for one, he hits it a mile. There is thought process behind it all. He understands what pitchers are trying to do to him. He can make adjustments. All of those things are great. It makes you believe that there's a chance he could be something more than just this, you know, exciting flash in the pan for the final two months of the season. Let's see where it goes from here. But they're really outside of what, like one or two games. There've been very few times that I've thought to myself like, yeah, all right, maybe that was the end of that. Like every single night he's doing something to make you say, okay, he may be legit actually. Yeah. I mean, the homers have dried up a little bit, but he's still hitting for power and he's still producing. And you said a thousand OPS. I mean, that's where he's at. A thousand one OPS over 94 major league plate appearances. It's crazy. This is like the one real bright spot the Nats have had here over these last few weeks. And the fact that he gets called up on August 2nd, the day on which the Nats trade away Juan Soto and Josh Bell, it's just so funny that like, well, that was a very painful day as we've discussed, but at least you did get this guy being brought up and he's been a bright spot. And uh, I don't know that either Soto or Bell would have been doing any better than Manessis has done since August 2nd for the Nats. So I was just going to say, he was brought up to play first base. He's actually playing right field because Luke Voigt is at first. Think of it this way. If I told you at, uh, what, four o'clock on August 2nd after the trade deadline passed and we knew Soto was gone, that the Nationals would still get a thousand OPS out of their right fielder for the next month, would you ever believe that was possible? I know. Isn't that crazy? That, that That's so nuts how that's happened. But that has happened. And he, and I guess to a lesser extent, you have to say Ildemaro Vargas, those guys have been the Nats offense for the last month. I mean, basically nobody else has been consistent. Although you did get some production on Tuesday night from other guys. Lane Thomas on Tuesday night was good. He was a Nats starting left fielder and number one batter, two for four with a solo homer, an RBI single, and a walk. Uh, you know, Lane Thomas in some ways was the Joey Manessis of last season, surprisingly productive over the final few months. Thomas on Tuesday night in that two-run first, a leadoff homer to left center to tie the game at one. Thomas in the Nats two-run second, a one-out RBI single. He in a one-run fourth, drew a two-out eight-pitch walk. You know, the Nats had a 4-1 lead in this game. It's kind of funny to look back on that. They end up losing 10-6. Nats were up 4-1. And then Luis Garcia homered on Tuesday night. He in a one-run eighth, a leadoff opposite field homer to left center to cut the Nats deficit to 10-6. Also made a nice play at second base. So the Nats hit. I mean, you had the two home runs. You had three doubles from Joey Manessis. Offense, for once, was not the problem. Pitching, unfortunately, was. We also had yet another base running blunder for Victor Robles. You know, we don't want to go back to all the negativity here, but I mean, <laughs> you have to laugh at this. Victor Robles had two hits on Tuesday night. And the two hits, I haven't looked up the stat cast data. It feels to me like the two hits, the combined exit velocities are like 80 miles per hour. It looked like Victor had like zero exit velo on those hits. But he did have two hits, including in the one run fourth, a leadoff infield single down the third baseline on an 0-2 pitch. That was like a classic Robles hit. And then later in the inning, you had a classic Robles base running boo-boo. He gets picked off and caught stealing second base for the second out. And I think the reaction of everyone watching the game who's an Ats fan is like, well, that's Victor Robles, you know? It's like, I think we're out of outrage at this point that you just see that stuff happen. Like, that's just the way it is with him, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I wish I had some kind of real hard analysis for you on the play, but we've done this how many times over the last couple of years? There's not a whole lot left to say except that when the same problems keep coming up and nothing has been done to correct it, he has not been able to fix it. You do ask yourself, how many more chances is he going to get? Maybe he's here for the rest of the year. Maybe they've just decided they don't have anything better and they're going to keep putting him out there and hope that someday is the day that it turns for him. But remember, they called up Alex Call and threw him into the lineup leading off first game. And we've barely seen him since. He's had a few nice moments. It's not like he's played a lot. But is there any harm at this point to playing him over Robles? I'm not really sure what's going on, especially not just the production, but at some point, don't you have to send Victor Robles a message to say, you keep doing these things, you're not going to play anymore. You're not our center fielder when you continually make the same fundamental mistakes all the time. I don't know. I don't really get where they're coming from here. I guess they just believe that they don't have better options. But at this point, they're not trying to win a bunch of games. They're not going to the rest of the way. Why not try to at least convey to Victor Robles that what we're seeing here is not acceptable? Alex Cole, Josh Palacios, Michael Franco, Alcides Escobar, Jeffrey Rodriguez, they're all sitting at a table together and they're just kind of commiserating on like the guys who just did not play, do not play for the Nats over these last two years. Interesting though, Robles on Tuesday night, the number eight batter, C.J. Abrams on Tuesday night, the number nine batter. I think we understand why C.J.'s been struggling. Did have a hit on Tuesday night. It was nice to see that, but that was notable. I mean, it takes a lot when Robles is not batting leadoff for him to not be ninth. Abrams batted ninth on Tuesday night. That definitely stuck out. Yeah, he's facing a lefty. Maybe that had something to do with it. You know, a little bit better result, perhaps. Thought he looked good in the field. I thought they actually had defensively a really nice night in the infield. Actually, the outfield, too. Manessas made a nice play in right field. But Luis Garcia looked better at second. Vargas had some nice plays. They looked a little crisper in the field. Not that it mattered much in the game if they lost 10 to 6. No, no. Good defense will only do so much for you when you give up 10 runs. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram too at Nats chat podcast. You could get yourself or someone who you know a Nats chat podcast t-shirt by going to Nats chat podcast dot square dot site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats chat or courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we're going to leave you now with uh, something special, something a little different. Our own Tim Shovers had the chance to chat with Will Bardenwerper, a D.C. native. He is writing a book on small-town baseball and its importance in bringing communities together. So we'll leave you with that, and we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. It's a long season, and you got to trust it. I've tried them all I really have, and the only church that truly feeds the soul day in, day out is the Church of Baseball. Pleased to be joined by a D.C. native, a Gonzaga grad, currently lives in Pittsburgh, Will Bardenwerper. Will, tell us about the project that you are currently working on. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I wrote an article for Harper's Magazine, and uh, basically what it does is it tells the story of the fate of uh, what had been minor league baseball's Appalachian League, which was a minor league rookie league that had produced players like Jacob deGrom, Noah Syndergaard, among other notable uh, alums in recent years. And it was 
recently contracted by Major League Baseball. It was one of the 40 teams that were uh, eliminated prior to the, the summer of 2020. And so the article basically explores what the league was historically and some of the forces that led to its ultimate extinction. Now I'm writing a book that's going to kind of expand on some of those themes and look at the importance of baseball to smaller communities and why it is becoming increasingly endangered. In your travels and and learning a lot about the minor leagues, what's the number one most glaring effect you've noticed stemming from the entire 2020 minor league season being canceled? What's something that you notice now in August of 2022 that would never have crossed your mind in August of 2019? You know, what's becoming increasingly clear is the extent to which the entire model of minor league baseball is is undergoing profound change. I mean, if you look at it historically, there were hundreds of affiliated teams. In some cases, I think, you know, there were there were major league teams that had upwards of, of 20 affiliates. More recently, prior to this recent round of contraction in 2020, there were 160, then that has been reduced to 120. And I think that it's not, I think there's a decent chance that they're going to get down to to 90 at some point, you know, in in coming years. And so I think the entire landscape of minor league baseball is is undergoing change. And I think the uh, conception of, of basically the purpose that it serves has been, you know, questioned by a number of major league organizations that think they can be just as effective at producing major league players without this elaborate infrastructure of, you know, multiple minor league teams at, at different levels. And I think the direction they're going is to try to do as much of this as they can at their, you know, spring training complexes, for example, in Arizona and Florida, uh, you know, through the use of, of analytics and sort of quantitative assessments and without, you know, having to play long seasons with big teams um, in all, you know, in small towns across the country. One of the uh, projects you've been working on is a book about the Batavia community's connection with baseball. Batavia is in New York, part of the New York Penn League. When you go there, just sort of give me a feel for what's the morale in a town like that with minor league baseball? What are some of the, the main nuggets you've picked up when, when getting to know that community? What I've observed in Batavia is, is consistent with what I saw in, in some of these Appalachian League communities in the Carolinas and in Tennessee, Virginia. There's a lot of similarities there and that they both lost their major league affiliated teams and those were replaced by college wood bat teams. Um, and I think what I noticed was that initially they were very upset to lose affiliated ball, especially when it was unclear what, if anything, would take its place. They thought that maybe they had seen, you know, their, their last, you know, baseball game in some of those towns, um, at that level or, you know, anything approximating that level. So initially there was, there was sadness and, and, um, you know, uh, some uncertainty about what the future may hold. I think they were glad to have baseball sort of, you know, resurrected in, in some capacity, even though I don't think anyone would, would contend that the college level is, you know, equivalent to, to the affiliated level as far as the quality of the play that you find on the field. But what was preserved was the ballpark as kind of a community gathering place and a place uh, where friends and neighbors can come together and enjoy each other's company and have a good time on a, on a nice warm summer night. And that's kind of what I hope to address in the book is just the importance of having that uh, to a, a place um, for you know, 30, 40, 50 nights a year. There's something that, that can bring people together for some affordable entertainment and just to have a good time. Well, I want to thank you for joining us here today. And any closing thoughts that you have um, 
for you want to share with our listeners about what you learned and, and why they should be on the lookout for uh, your next upcoming project? Sure. I mean, I think for city dwellers, you know, such as myself, um, who may not have had the opportunity to get to a lot of minor league games or in the, in the case of my book, college uh, wood bat games, I think it's just important to recognize what makes those games so special and so unique. And, you know, I guess I would contrast this season. I went to opening day at a major league ballpark with my son and we paid a lot of money. We were sitting up in nosebleed seats. You know, he, he could barely see the field from up there. And while I'm a major league fan, you know, I think uh, as a family experience, it, it, you know, left a little bit to be desired given the, the difficulty of, of, of uh, you know, maintaining a, a five-year-old's attention span on something that was so far away. Whereas if you go to a minor league game, I mean, it really is just, it's, it's so much fun. And he, you can sit right up on the field for, you know, five or 10 bucks. You can interact with the mascot. The kids run the bases between innings. If you get bored, you can walk around to the bouncy house or any of the, you know, numerous things that they have uh, to appeal to, to, to young children. And um, it's just... It's, it's just unique and special. And I think part of the sort of the a special part of the history of baseball in America that, you know, everyone really, um, I think, should do their best to, to support and ideally, you know, have some exposure to. So I guess that that would be my last little little plug of, of small town baseball uh, writ large. Thomas runs the three two is blasted down the left field line. That's going to be down and fair and headed to the corner. Thomas racing around third, being waved in. Kemp's throw is going to be cut off. Thomas scores, and Joey Manessis has his third double in the first four innings. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.